Hey, this is the NGC and Susie, and you're listening to Failing with Flair. Yay! Hey guys, it's ENG here for another episode of Failing with Flair. And in the spirit of Failing with Flair, I have got to make a confession. This is probably the sixth or seventh time I have tried recording this very episode. And let's face it, a lot of the episodes that I record, at least me personally, I do one or two takes because inevitably I say something and I think that I can say it better. And if I have the opportunity to edit that for you guys, I will. But this one was just getting a little ridiculous. I mean, I like having as few takes as possible because I want you guys to kind of hear off the cuff what's happening and what's going on. So what was happening is I just had a lot of really random stuff. In one take, I have a dog here at home and you could hear her like eating and playing with her toys in the background, which was really distracting. In another episode, I decided to go to my local library because that way I couldn't be distracted. Uh, But there was an awful, awful echo in that recording. In another recording, I was making a lot of really weird verbal noises, which was really annoying. And in another recording, as I was getting to the end, there was one recording that was golden. Like I felt like I was just on a roll telling a really great story, sharing some really great pieces. And I went back and I had clicked on another app on my screen to look at some notes that I had written for myself um, that I wanted to capture and make sure you guys caught. And then I went back and the recording had stopped just in the middle of all of this greatness. And that was really frustrating. And so I went back and thought for sure it was because I had opened this other app. So I reset my screen, got back in the zone. I mean, like immediately went back into re-recording it to stay in that energy. And then as I was 25, 26, 27 minutes into the recording, I saw a warning that flashed that said that I have a 30-minute recording um, limit on this particular program in this particular browser. And then as I noticed that was coming up and I I was in the middle of the story, there was no way I was going to wrap up in two minutes. And then I heard my partner coming down the hallway and my dog started getting ready to go nuts and I just had to step away out of frustration. So here I am. Uh, making this, like I said, sixth or seventh recording. And I have decided based on all that I have learned that I am actually going to be breaking this story up into two different podcasts because of that timing piece that I have learned. So here we go. This story is actually my entrepreneurial journey. And it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to, especially if you're an entrepreneur or you want to have an uh, an entrepreneurial lifestyle. Maybe you're starting a business. Maybe you have a side hustle, whatever the case may be. Uh, There's just lots of good stuff that I think comes from this. And the theme that I want to take away from the story, if you listen to my last podcast about my marriage, I really want to focus on this quote and this idea that the only way to fail is to quit. And like I said before, there is a lot of truth that goes into that statement. The only way to fail is to quit. It's to stop doing something. But there is a big difference between quitting something and moving away from something or transitioning away from something that you have outgrown that no longer serves you and your vision. And why I think this quote can sometimes be a little um, 
detrimental to people when they think about failure and when they think about quitting and and leaving something behind is, at least for me and my story, there was kind of this expectation that I was just going to wake up one day and know what I was going to do. I was reflecting, I remember as young as first or second grade, my parents being really, really adamant about finding out what I was going to do when I grew up, what I was going to study when I go to college. My dad, whether or not he was joking, would start asking me about what schools I wanted to go to in like third or fourth grade because, I mean, I'll give them the bonus. They wanted their daughter to go on and be successful and think into her future. But, you know, at seven or eight years old, maybe I just wanted to be a kid. (laughs) And um, Elizabeth Gilbert actually has this really great speech about this. It might have been a TED Talk. It might be something on YouTube. Elizabeth Gilbert, she is the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. She talks about how in life, there are some of us who are jackhammers when it comes to our career, our passion, our dreams, and our goals. We wake up, one jackhammers wake up one day and they know that they are going to do X. They're going to be writers. They're going to be speakers. They're going to be attorneys or the president of the United States or astronauts or whatever. And that's not just a kid who's thinking big, who's believing in a, you know, in a, a fantasy. It's like a real thing. They, they're just, they're gonna, they're, they're heat-seeking missiles and they will do whatever it takes to go and do that thing. Elizabeth Gilbert calls herself a jackhammer. She woke up one day and she knew she was going to be a writer and there was nothing else in the world that she was going to do except for write. Then there are those of us in the world who are more like hummingbirds or bumblebees. I can't remember which she used in the the TED Talk. But in this case, these individuals, they don't wake up one day and just know what they're going to be. They go through this process of self-evolution, of learning who they are, of trying something, and then going and doing something completely unrelated cross-pollinating, if you will, which is where the bumblebee and the hummingbird example comes from. You know, they fly from flower to flower. They get a little pollen. They get a little nectar until one day they finally wake up and they say, this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes hummingbirds and bumblebees, they wake up one day and they realize that they've got something that they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And that's what they spend the rest of their lives doing. And others spend the rest of their lives continuing to move through life, growing and learning and trying new things and and learning more about themselves and then moving on to something else. And so if you're listening to this and you're relating more with the bumblebee hummingbird example, uh, let me tell you, that's a lot of what my story is. And I think it's a lot of people's story. I think that's becoming the new norm is the idea of the hummingbird or the bumblebee. You start somewhere And you learn something from it. But then in order to move on to your next flower, you have to leave something behind. And that means that you have to quit something. So are you quitting and failing or are you moving on? And that's kind of the theme of my story. So since I brought up my childhood and like being asked to think about what I wanted to be when I grew up, there were only a couple of things that I really, really wanted to be. I, I remember bouncing around between these three ideas. The first thing that I really, really wanted to do was dance. I was a dancer. 
formally and informally, really starting at the age of two. I started competitive dancing in sixth grade, went on to do various different dancing through my high school years and was really, really getting into more of the formal technique training and just really wanted to go out and and be like a backup dancer for Christina Aguilera or Britney Spears. It was like really the goal and the dream. And I was really throwing myself headfirst into self-educating myself, into getting into classes, into being around people who were involved in dancing and just doing whatever it took to try and get those experiences and prepare myself for that moving forward. And then when I was a sophomore in – sorry, freshman in high school, I had a knee injury that really set me back. I continued to re-injure that knee until finally my junior, senior year of high school, my orthopedic physician said – I can make you healthy enough to finish out your senior year of high school, but it's really going to be a very dangerous thing for you to continue dancing, especially on a professional level. We're going to need to look at possibly some surgery here in the future. And I'm really glad I listened to his advice because what I didn't realize until I went into surgery a year or two later was that the underside of my kneecap, um, there was a fissure from one of the injuries. So you can't see it in in an MRI or in an X-ray because it's on the underside of the knee. And they saw it because they went in orthoscopically. They had to um, shave the bone, literally, to remove the fissure so that that didn't crack all the way through my kneecap. So there's a fun little story about my knee. So that meant I had to go to my backup plan. My backup plan was to be a teacher. That was option number two. I've always loved being in front of a classroom and in front of people. And I realized that's what I started my education. That's how I ended up at Eastern Michigan University is because they have a wonderful teaching program. And then I was volunteering at various different alum events through my high school, specifically coaching and judging the forensic speech and debate team. And the older that I got, the more that I realized I liked working with kids in small groups, but definitely not in large groups. So being in a classroom suddenly didn't seem like the right place for me. So I went for option three. And decided by the middle of my sophomore year that I was going to get a degree in political science and go to law school. And that was really the track that I went on for a while until I got an internship when I was a senior and someone sat me down and said, so law school, like, do you really want to go to law school? And he went on to explain that he was anticipating that there was going to be a law school bubble that was going to burst. Now, this was the late 2000s leading into 2010. We're just starting to see the Great Recession and really get into all of that. And thankfully, this mentor who I'd been interning with was very, very honest and said, listen, if you really love law and you want to go back to law school, you're always going to have an opportunity to go back to law school and be a lawyer. But if you go to law school and spend three years and then get into a law degree and figure out you hate it, you're still going to owe $100,000 or more in law school debt plus your undergrad, and you're going to be miserable. So maybe go out and find out what it is that you really love to do. So eight weeks before graduation from college, I decided to not pursue law school, which made my family really excited. (laughs) about as excited as I was to be graduating with a piece of paper that said I knew how our government worked 
And there's really only a couple things you can do with a poli-sci degree. If you're going to work in the poli-sci field, you can go to law school and follow that. You can get a master's in public administration. You can go into education, get a doctorate if you want to do more college or research. Um, You can work in campaigns. You can, I mean, there's things to do, but none of it really made me excited. And most of it was going to require at least a master's or a law degree, if not a PhD. So I graduated college and I had no stinking idea what I was going to do at the height of the Great Recession, probably one of the lowest points in my life. I mean, I remember just being super insecure and super desperate and super unsure of who I was and what I was going to do and what my future looked like. And I was finally given this really goal. At the time, it was a golden opportunity. Uh, One of my friend's mothers worked for a car dealership, and they were looking for someone to run the internet sales department. And so I was brought in for an interview. And what's hysterical is the only reason that I got this job is because I had an email address, and I knew how to use social media, and they had looked me up on Facebook, and I knew privacy settings well enough on Facebook that they couldn't see any crazy, weird pictures or anything. Everything looked, quote unquote, clean. And, uh, you know, that's that's what landed me the job. <laughs> so that's how I got started with my first adult position in the marketplace. And so my job as the internet sales manager was to take various different internet leads that would come to the dealership, either from the parent corporation or from third-party vendors, such as AutoTrader, and convert those leads into sales appointments and then pass them off to used or new car sales, depending on what they were doing. Or if someone was looking just to sell a car, like through those third-party sites, then I would negotiate the deal with the used car manager. And I was pretty good at doing all of that. So good that one of those third-party vendors that we were working with showed up at the office and asked for a management meeting with our like core management team, right? So the owner, the general manager, used car sales manager, new car sales manager. And in that meeting, um, it was the sales rep and our account rep, which was very unusual. Normally, we didn't see the expect to see the sales rep once the sale was made. It was all the account rep. And eventually, they were brought over to my desk and introduced to me because they had a unique, a unique situation that they needed my help with. Apparently, our dealership, through this third-party site and through their tracking and through their data collection, we were doing hand over fist, incredible numbers, things that were making it very, very easy to sell the salesperson and made it very easy for that person to sell the opportunity of this third-party vendor to other car dealerships. Problem was, is that no one could replicate them. We were so far hand over fist ahead of what other dealerships were doing that they needed help because they were losing counts faster than they could gain them because no one could figure out how I was getting the numbers that I was getting. And so they were asking for my assistance. And I told them if they wanted to bring me in as a trainer, a training manager, that I would be happy to do that. But I wasn't just going to give them my secrets. So pause. 
sidebar in the story. If you're listening to this and you're wondering, how did she do that? I'll tell you right now, I was doing everything that a lot of marketing classes will tell you to do now. Remember, this all took place about 10 years ago when social media marketing was just getting started. Business pages and profiles had really been just launched by Facebook as far as like getting likes and and sharing things and and email marketing was just really getting its foot in the ground. And so what other car dealerships were doing in the area is they were receiving a lead saying that someone wanted to buy a an XYZ vehicle and trade in their ABC vehicle. And so everyone would start spamming them with, here's our pricing and here's the credit score you need and here's the down payment and here's all the deals and when can you come in and we've got the paperwork ready for you and all it's going to take is 30 minutes to sign and drive and whatever. And when I would send communication, it would look like, hey, my name is Angie and I see that you're looking to trade in A, B, and C for X, Y, Z. What is it that makes you think you want that vehicle? No numbers, no no craziness, just trying to build a relationship. And so what would happen is people would then respond and we would have a conversation and I would explain, I would ask questions and find out what they were looking for, find out what their needs are. It's a novel sales concept. Uh, In case you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, I'm not being serious. (laughs) And so by the time these people were coming into the car dealership, they were treating me like they were old friends. They were coming in. They were hugging me. They trusted me. They trusted that I was giving them to a good salesperson. And then they were making deals. And so that's all I was doing was building relationships. Sidebar over. Back into the story. So shortly after this happened, the dealership realized that I had a knack for building relationships, which then was helping them with their profitability. So they ended up having me do the business development center coordinator. And my core responsibility, I had a couple of sub sub projects that I had going on, but one of the big things that I was doing was the vehicle delivery process. And essentially there I had a team of individuals and our job was when a car was going to be delivered, we would take the individual through a tour of the dealership and a tour of the vehicle, help them like figure out how to turn on their windshield wiper blades and set their radio and set their seat and turn on their Bluetooth and all of those things uh, that can ha- that can feel a little strange in a new vehicle as you're starting to get it set up. And again, we're building relationships and then that makes them more comfortable and want to come back and so on and so forth. And so we found that referrals were starting to increase, uh, sales were starting to look better, people were coming back to our service department because they were getting introduced. We had just a lot of good stuff. And I it occurred to me as all of this was happening that I was helping the dealership be really, really successful, which felt good, but someone else was always going to be, ter- be determining how much that was worth to them. And that's really when the entrepreneurial bug bit me. And I decided it was time for me to seek out my next option. And at that time, I had been involved in a home-based direct sales business for a number of years since I was in college. And it was a cosmetics company. And when I was in college... I lived in a dorm. I didn't have a car. Many of the people, especially the women in my dorm room, didn't have cars either. But we all needed mascara and lip gloss. And so I figured that would be 
a really, really easy opportunity to take a hold of just so I had a little bit of extra cash to, you know, buy food or go out to dinner instead of going to the the food court or whatever I was doing at that time. Definitely wasn't anything smart like investing. <laughs> and so I had held on to that uh, business, not to do necessarily, or I think I was going to do it after college, but really just so that I got my discount and, you know, if someone else, you know, in my family, my sisters, my mom, whatever, needed something that I could get it for them. Well, as I was getting more and more fed up with what was going on at the dealership, I kind of turned around and said, well, there are other people who are doing this successfully, so why not me? And so that's when I contacted my recruiter and got connected with some other individuals in the company and started the process of building that business. And within nine months, I was given a choice. And the choice was that I could either stay at the dealership where I was working Monday and Thursday, 9 to 9, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, 9 to 6, and between two and three Saturdays a month, 9 to 4, and then spending all day Sunday rusting because I was burnt out and dreading the 12-hour day I was facing the next day. Or I could get serious about investing in myself and starting my own business. And I made the decision to leave the car dealership. So I quit. Now, you can look at this one of two ways. You could say that I quit a very successful and very lucrative career to take a chance on some lipstick and mascara. (laughs) And I failed. You know, I failed at my car dealership career. Or you could say that based on this vision that I was building for my life and the direction that I wanted to go, I transitioned away from something that no longer made sense for me moving forward into something that did make sense. So when you look at this quote, the only way to fail is to quit. What are you quitting? For me, I was quitting something that wasn't going to take me in the direction of my le- of the life that I craved. Above all else, what I craved in that moment was, one, freedom and flexibility to not have to show up for someone else. I could go to work when I wanted, work with who I wanted, when I wanted, doing mostly what I wanted. And I say mostly because there's always going to be things that you don't want to do that you need to do to be successful. Like, let's just throw that out there. No one, if you're in a sales career, no one likes making cold calls, but cold calls are one way that a lot of people use to build their business and get started. Like, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So quitting isn't always the worst failure that you could make. The way I see this story is the biggest failure for me would have been to be afraid of making the jump and staying in that car dealership where I felt like my soul was getting sucked out like a Dementor kiss in the Harry Potter series, where I was dreading my life and hating my life and absolutely despising what I was doing and just feeling really, really wrung out like a 
dish rag or a sponge. Or I could live a life of, of passion and of hope moving forward in the future. So when you think about failing and failing with flair, the question isn't what other people think about you. In this situation, I remember my last day. I was walking past the finance department to walk out to the parking lot, clock out and go out to my car. And the finance manager looked at me and she said, yeah, good luck on your little cosmetic thing. I'll see you back in two months. And she was right. She did see me in two months because I was delivering product to a handful of the women who had decided to become my customers at that point. (laughs) And, uh, I just can't reinforce enough. What are you quitting? And and who cares? Like to that finance manager, I was quitting this really lucrative career, this safety, this place where I was going to make money and buy a big house and have a nice car and eventually possibly even earn the right to use a, a dealership car so that way I wouldn't have a car payment or the, you know, the the company would cover car and insurance and and have these beautiful vacations that I was only going to have three or four weeks of a year and have all this stuff. Or I was going to have a life that I woke up and loved living. And for me, not having a life that I was waking up and loving living, that was the biggest failure. That would have been the biggest failure, was believing that some false sense of security was going to be the thing that I needed. So that is the first part of this entrepreneurial journey when we talk about this failing with flair and what are you actually failing at when we say the only way to fail is to quit. And in my next episode, I'm going to share what happened after that first big jump from corporate security into entrepreneurial life and the roller coaster that came with that decision. Thanks so much for listening. I cannot wait to share with you the rest of this story. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, as you're listening to this, I just want you to remember, fail big, fail often, and most importantly, fail with flair. Thanks for joining us this week on Failing with Flair. Make sure to subscribe to the show in Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Breaker so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help out too. If you like the show and want more encouragement to fail with flair, you could check out my Monday morning motivation email series. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Until then, feel big, fail often, and fail with flair. <laughs>